Chapter Fourteen of Romola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Romola by George Eliot. Chapter Fourteen, The Peasant's Fair. The moving crowd and the strange mixture of noises that burst in on him at the entrance of the piazza reminded Tito of what Nello had said to him about the Fiorcoloni, and he pushed his way into the crowd with a sort of pleasure in the hooting and elbowing which filled the empty moments and dulled that calculation of the future which had so new a dreariness for him as he foresaw himself wandering away solitary in pursuit of some unknown fortune that his thought had even glanced towards going in search of Baltasari after all. At each of the opposite inlets he saw people struggling into the piazza, while above them paper lanterns held aloft on sticks were waving to and fro. A rude monotonous chant made a distinctly traceable strand of noise, across which screams, whistles, jibing chants in piping boyish voices, the beating of drums and the ringing of little bells met each other in confused din. Every now and then one of the dim floating lights disappeared with a smash from a stone launched more or less vaguely in the pursuit of mischief, followed by a scream and renewed shouts. But on the outskirts of the whirling tumult there were groups who were keeping this vigil of the nativity of the Virgin in a more methodical manner than by fitful stone-throwing and jibing. Certain ragged men, darting a hard sharp glance around them while their tongues rattled merrily, were inviting country people to game with them on fair and open-handed terms. Two masquerading figures on stilts, who had snatched lanterns from the crowd, were swaying the lights to and fro in meteoric fashion, as they strode hither and thither. A sage trader was doing a profitable business at a small covered stall, in hot Berlingrozzi, a favourite farinaceous delicacy. One man, standing on a barrel, with his back firmly planted against a pillar of the lodger in front of the foundling hospital, Spedali degli Innocenti, was selling efficacious pills invented by a doctor of Salerno, warranted to prevent toothache and death by drowning. And not far off, against another pillar, a tumbler was showing off his tricks on a small platform, while a handful of prentices, despising the slack entertainment of guerrilla stone-throwing, were having a private concentrated match of that favourite Florentine sport at the narrow entrance of the Via del Vibrai. Tito, obliged to make his way through chance openings in the crowd, found himself, at one moment, close to the trotting procession of barefooted, hard-heeled contadine, and could see their sun-dried, bronzed faces, and their strange, fragmentary garb, dim with hereditary dirt, and of obsolete stuffs of fashions that made them look, in the eyes of the city people, like a wayworn ancestry returning from a pilgrimage on which they had set out centuries ago. Just then it was the hardy, scant-feeding peasant women from the mountains of Pistoia, who were entering with a year's labour in a moderate bundle of yarn on their backs. And in their hearts that meagre hope of good and that wide dim fear of harm which was somehow to be cared for by the blessed virgin whose miraculous image painted by the angels was to have the curtain drawn away from it on this eve of her nativity that her potency might stream forth without obstruction at another moment he was forced away towards the boundary of the piazza 
where the more stationary candidates for attention and small coin had judiciously placed themselves in order to be safe in their rear. Among these, Tito recognised his acquaintance, Bratti, who stood with his back against a pillar and his mouth pursed up in disdainful silence, eyeing everyone who approached him with a cold glance of superiority, and keeping his hand fast on the serge covering which concealed the contents of the basket slung before him. Rather surprised at a deportment so unusual in an anxious trader, Tito went nearer and saw two women go up to Bratti's basket with a look of curiosity, whereupon the peddler drew his covering tighter and looked another way. It was quite too provoking, and one of the women was fain to ask what there was in his basket. Before I answer that, Mona, I must know whether you mean to buy. I can't show such wares as mine in this fair for every fly to settle on and pay nothing. My goods are a little too choice for that. Besides, I've only two left and I've no mind to sell them. For with the chance of the pestilence that wise men talk of, there is likelihood of their being worth their weight in gold. No, no, andate con Dio. The two women looked at each other. And what may be the price? said the second. Not within what you are likely to have in your purse, buona donna, said Prati in a compassionately supercilious tone. I recommend you trust in Messer Domineggio and the saints. Poor people can do no better for themselves. Not so poor, said the second woman indignantly, drawing out her money bag. Come now, what do you say to a grosso? I say you may get twenty-one quattrini for it, said Prati coolly. But not of me, for I haven't got that small change. Come, two then said the woman, getting exasperated, while her companion looked at her with some envy. It will hardly be above two, I think. After further bidding and further mercantile coquetry, Prati put on an air of concession. Since you've set your mind on it, he said slowly, raising the cover, I should be loath to do you mischief, for Maestro Gabadeo used to say, when a woman sets her mind on a thing and doesn't get it, She's in more danger of the pestilence than before. Ecco, I have but two left, and let me tell you, the fellow to them is on the finger of Maestro Gabadeo, who is gone to Bologna, as wise a doctor as sits at any door. The precious objects were two clumsy iron rings, beaten into the fashion of old Roman rings, such as were sometimes disinterred, the rust on them and the entirely hidden character of their potency were so satisfactory that the grossi were paid without grumbling and the first woman destitute of those handsome coins succeeded after much show of reluctance on prati's part in driving a bargain with some of her yarn and carried off the remaining ring in triumph prati covered up his basket which was now filled with miscellanies probably obtained under the same circumstances as the yarn, and, moving from his pillar, came suddenly upon Tito, who, if he had had time, would have chosen to avoid recognition. "'By the head of San Giovanni, now,' said Prati, drawing Tito back to the pillar. "'This is a piece of luck, for I was talking of you this morning, Messer Greco.' 
But, I said, he is mounted up among the signori now, and I'm glad of it, for I was at the bottom of his fortune, but I can rarely get speech of him, for he's not to be caught lying on the stones now, not he. But it's your luck, not mine, Messer Greco, save and accept some small trifle to satisfy me for my trouble in the transaction. You speak in riddles, Prati, said Tito. Remember, I don't sharpen my wits as you do by driving bargains for iron rings. You must be plain. By the holy angels, it was an easy bargain I gave them. If a Hebrew gets thirty-two per cent, I hope a Christian can get a little more. If I had not borne a conscience, I should have got twice the money and twice the yarn. But, talking of rings, it is your ring, that very ring you've got on your finger, that I could get you a purchaser for. I and a purchaser with a deep money bag. Truly, said Tito, looking at his ring and listening. A Genoese is going straight away into Hungary, as I understand. He came and looked all over my shop to see if I had any old things I didn't know the price of. I warrant you, he thought I had a pumpkin on my shoulders. He had been rummaging all the shops in Florence, and he had a ring on, not like yours, but something of the same fashion. And as he was talking of rings, I said, I knew a fine young man, a particular acquaintance of mine, who had a ring of that sort. And he said, Who is he, pray? Tell him I'll give him his price for it. And I thought of going after you to Nella's tomorrow, for it's my opinion of you, Messer Greco, that you're not one who'd see the Arno run broth and stand by without dipping your finger. Tito had lost no word of what Bratti had said, yet his mind had been very busy all the while. Why should he keep the ring? It had been a mere sentiment, a mere fancy, that had prevented him from selling it with the other gems. If he had been wiser and had sold it, he might perhaps have escaped that identification by Fra Luca. It was true that it had been taken from Baltasar's finger and put on his own as soon as his young hand had grown to the needful size, but there was really no valid good to anybody in those superstitious scruples about inanimate objects. The ring had helped towards the recognition of him. Tito had begun to dislike recognition, which was a claim to the past. This foreigner's offer, if he would really give a good price, was an opportunity for getting rid of the ring without the trouble of seeking a purchaser. "'You speak with your usual wisdom, Bratti,' said Tito. "'I have no objection to hear what your Genoese will offer, but when and where shall I have speech of him?' "'Tomorrow, at three hours after sunrise, he will be at my shop. And, if your wits are of that sharpness I have always taken them to be, Messer Greco, you will ask him a heavy price, for he minds not money. It's my belief he's buying for somebody else and not himself, perhaps for some great signor. It is well, said Tito. I will be at your shop if nothing hinders. And you will doubtless deal nobly by me, for old acquaintance sake, Messer Greco. So I will not stay to fix the small sum you will give me in token of my service in this matter. It seems to me a thousand years now till I get out of the piazza, for a fair is a dull, not to say a wicked thing, 
when one has no more goods to sell. Tito made a hasty sign of assent and adieu, and moving away from the pillar, again found himself pushed towards the middle of the piazza and back again, without the power of determining his own course. In this zigzag way, he was carried along to the end of the piazza opposite the church, where, in a deep recess formed by an irregularity in the line of houses, an entertainment was going forward which seemed especially attractive to the crowd. A loud burst of laughter interrupted a monologue, which was sometimes slow and oratorical, at others rattling and buffoonish. Here a girl was being pushed forward into the inner circle with apparent reluctance, and there a loud laughing minx was finding a way with her own elbows. It was a strange light that was spread off the piazza. There were the pale stars breaking out above, and the dim waving lanterns below, leaving all objects indistinct except when they were seen close under the fitfully moving lights. But in this recess there was a stronger light against which the heads of the encircling spectators stood in dark relief as Tito was gradually pushed towards them, while above them rose the head of a man wearing a white mitre with yellow cabalistic figures upon it. "'Behold, my children!' Tito heard him saying. "'Behold your opportunity!' neglect not the holy sacrament of matrimony when it can be had for the small sum of a white quattrino the cheapest matrimony ever offered and dissolved by special bull beforehand at every man's own will and pleasure behold the bull here the speaker held up a piece of parchment with huge seals attached to it behold the indulgence granted by his holiness alexander the sixth who being newly elected pope for his peculiar piety intends to reform and purify the church and wisely begins by abolishing that priestly abuse which keeps too large a share of this privileged matrimony to the clergy and stints the laity spit once my sons and pay a white quattrino this is the whole and sole price of the indulgence the quattrino is the only difference the holy father allows to be put any longer between us and the clergy who spit and pay nothing tito thought he knew the voice which had a peculiarly sharp ring but the face was too much in shadow from the lights behind for him to be sure of the features stepping as near as he could he saw within the circle behind the speaker an altar-like table raised on a small platform and covered with a red drapery stitched all over with yellow cabalistic figures half a dozen thin tapers burnt at the back of this table which had a conjuring apparatus scattered over it a large open book in the centre and at one of the front angles a monkey fastened by a cord to a small ring and holding a small taper which in his incessant fidgety movements fell more or less aslant whilst an impish boy in a white surplice occupied himself chiefly in coughing the monkey and adjusting the taper the man in the mitre also wore a surplice and over it a chasuble on which the signs of the zodiac 
were rudely marked in black upon a yellow ground. Tito was sure now that he recognised the sharp upward-tending angles of the face under the mitre. It was that of Maestro Vajano, the mountbank, from whom he had rescued Tessa, pretty little Tessa. Perhaps she too had come in among the troops of Contadine. Come, my maidens, this is the time for the pretty who can have many chances, and for the ill-favoured who have few. Matrimony to be had hot, eaten, and done with as easily as Berlingrazzi. And see! Here the conjurer held up a cluster of tiny bags. To every bride I give a breve with a secret in it. The secret alone worth the money you pay for the matrimony. The secret how to... No, no, I will not tell you what the secret is about, and that makes it a double secret. Hang it round your neck, if you like, and never look at it. I don't say that will not be the best, for then you will see many things you don't expect. Though if you open it, you may break your leg, è vero, but you will know a secret, something nobody knows but me. And mark, I give you the breve, I don't sell it as many another holy man would. The quattrino is for the matrimony, and the breve you get for nothing. Orsù Giovanetti come like dutiful sons of the church, and by the indulgence of his holiness, Alexander the Sixth. This buffoonery just fitted the taste of the audience. The Fior Colonna was but a small occasion, so the townsmen might be contented with jokes that were rather less indecent than those they were accustomed to hear at every carnival, put into easy rhythm by the Magnifico and his poetic satellites, while the women, over and above any relish of the fun, really began to have an itch for the brevi. Several couples had already gone through the ceremony, in which the conjurer's solemn gibberish and grimaces over the open book, the antics of the monkey, and even preliminary spitting, had called forth peals of laughter. And now a well-looking, merry-eyed youth of seventeen, in a loose tunic and red cap, pushed forward, holding by the hand a plump brunette, whose scanty ragged dress displayed her round arms and legs very picturesquely. "'Fetter us without delay, maestro,' said the youth, "'for I have got to take my bride home and paint her under the light of a lantern.' "'Ha, Mariotto, my son, I commend your pious observance.' The conjurer was going on, when a loud chattering behind warned him that an unpleasant crisis has arisen with his monkey. The temper of that imperfect acolyte was a little tried by the overactive discipline of his colleague in the surplice, and a sudden cuff administered as his taper fell to a horizontal position caused him to leap back with a violence that proved too much for the slackened knot by which his cord was fastened. His first leap was to the other end of the table, from which position his remonstrances were so threatening that the imp in the surplice took up a wand by way of an equivalent threat, whereupon the monkey leapt on the head of a tall woman in the foreground, dropping his taper by the way, and chattering with increased emphasis from that eminence. 
Great was the screaming and confusion, not a few of the spectators having a vague dread of the maestro's monkey as capable of more hidden mischief than mere teeth and claws could inflict. And the conjurer himself was in some alarm lest any harm should happen to his familiar. In this scuffle to seize the monkey's string, Tito got out of the circle and, not caring to contend for his place again, he allowed himself to be gradually pushed toward the church of the Nunziata and to enter amongst the worshippers. The brilliant illumination within seemed to press upon his eyes with palpable force after the pale scattered lights and broad shadows of the piazza, and for the first minute or two he could see nothing distinctly. That yellow splendour was in itself something supernatural and heavenly to many of the peasant women, for whom half the sky was hidden by mountains, and who went to bed in the twilight, and the uninterrupted chant of the choir was reposed to the ear after the hellish hubbub of the crowd outside. Gradually the scene became clearer, though still there was a thin yellow haze from incense mingling with the breath of the multitude. In a chapel on the left-hand side of the nave, wreathed with silver lamps, was seen unveiled the miraculous fresco of the Annunciata, which, in Tito's oblique view of it from the right-hand side of the nave, seemed dark with the excess of light around it. The whole area of the great church was filled with peasant women, some kneeling, some standing, the coarse bronzed skins and the dingy clothing of the rougher dwellers on the mountains, contrasting with the softer-lined faces and white or red-haired drapery of the well-to-do dwellers in the valley, who were scattered in irregular groups. And spreading high and far over the walls and ceiling, there was another multitude also pressing close against each other, that they might be nearer the potent virgin. It was the crowd of votive waxen images, the effigies of great personages, clothed in their habit as they lived, Florentines of high name in their black silk lucco, as when they sat in council, popes, emperors, kings, cardinals, and famous condottieri, with plump morions seated on their charges, all notable strangers who passed through Florence, or had aught to do with its affairs, Mohammedans, even in well-tolerated companionship with Christian cavaliers, some of them with faces blackened and robes tattered by the corroding breath of centuries, others fresh and bright in new red mantle or steel corselet, the exact doubles of the living, and, wedged in with all these, were detached arms, legs, and other members, with only here and there a gap where some image had been removed for public disgrace, or had fallen ominously, as Lorenzo's had done six months before. It was a perfect resurrection swarm of remote mortals and fragments of mortals, reflecting in their varying degrees of freshness the sombre dinginess and sprinkled brightness of the crowd below. Tito's glance wandered over the wild multitude in search of something. He had already thought of Tessa, and the white hoods suggested the possibility that he might detect her face under one of them. It was at least a thought to be courted, rather than the vision of Romola looking at him with changed eyes. But he searched in vain, and he was leaving the church, weary of a scene which had no variety, when, 
just against the doorway he caught sight of tessa only two yards off from him she was kneeling with her back against the wall behind a group of peasant women who were standing and looking for a spot nearer to the sacred image her head hung a little aside with a look of weariness and her blue eyes were directed rather absently towards an altarpiece where the archangel michael stood in his armour with young face and floating hair amongst bearded and tonsured saints her right hand holding a bunch of cocoons fell to her side listlessly and her round cheek was paled either by the light or by the weariness that was expressed in her attitude her lips were pressed poutingly together and every now and then her eyelids half fell she was a large image of a sweet sleepy child tito felt an irrepressible desire to go up to her and get her pretty trusting looks and prattle this creature who was without mortal judgment that could condemn him whose little loving ignorant soul made a world apart where he might feel a freedom from suspicions and exacting demands had a new attraction for him now she seemed a refuge from the threatened isolation that would come with disgrace he glanced cautiously round to assure himself that monlaghita was not near and then slipping quietly to her side kneeled on one knee and said in the softest voice tessa she hardly started any more than she would have started at a soft breeze that fanned her gently when she was kneading it she turned her head and saw tito's face close to her it was very much more beautiful than archangel michael's who was so mighty and so good that he lived with the madonna and all the saints and was prayed to along with them she smiled in happy silence for that nearness of tito quite filled her mind my little tessa you look very tired how long have you been kneeling here she seemed to be collecting her thoughts for a minute or two and at last she said i'm very hungry come then come with me he lifted her from her knees and led her out under the cloisters surrounding the atrium which were then open and not yet adorned with the frescoes of andre del sarto how is it you are all to yourself and so hungry tessa the madre is ill she has very bad pains in her legs and sent me to bring these cocoons to the santissima annunciata because they're so wonderful see she held up the bunch of cocoons which were arranged with fortuitous regularity on a stem and she had kept them to bring them herself but she couldn't so she sent me because she thinks the holy madonna may take away her pains and somebody took my bag with the bread and chestnuts in it and the people pushed me back and i was so frightened coming in the crowd and i couldn't get anywhere near the holy madonna to give the cocoons to the padre but i must oh i must yes my little tessa you shall take them but first come and let me give you some bellingrozzi there are some to be had not far off where did you come from said tessa a little bewildered i thought you would never come to me again because you never came to the mercato for milk any more i set myself aves to say to see if they would bring you back 
but I left off, because they didn't. You see, I am come when you want someone to take care of you, Tessa. Perhaps the Aves fetched me, only it took them a long while. But what shall you do if you are here all alone? Where shall you go? Ah, oh, I shall stay and sleep in the church. A great many of them do in the church, and all about here. I did once, when I came with my mother, and the Petrino is coming with the mules in the morning. They were out in the piazza now, where the crowd was rather less riotous than before, and the lights were fewer, the streams of pilgrims having ceased. Tessa clung fast to Tito's arm in satisfied silence, while he led her towards the stall, where he remembered seeing the eatables. Their way was the easier, because there was just now a great rush towards the middle of the piazza, where the masked figures on stilts had found space to execute a dance. It was very pretty to see the guileless thing giving her cocoons into Tito's hand, and then eating her bellingrozzi with the relish of a hungry child. Tito had really come to take care of her as he did before, and then wonderful happiness of being with him had begun again for her. Her hunger was soon appeased, all the sooner for the new stimulus of happiness that had roused her from her languor, and, as they turned away from the stall, she said nothing about going into the church again, but looked round as if the sights in the piazza were not without attraction to her now she was safe under Tito's arm. "'How can they do that?' she exclaimed, looking up at the dancers on stilts. Then, after a minute's silence, do you think St. Christopher helps them? Perhaps. What do you think about it, Tessa? Slipping his right arm round her and looking down at her fondly. Because St. Christopher is so very tall and he is very good. If anybody looks at him, he takes care of them all day. He is on the wall of the church, too tall to stand up there. But I saw him walking through the streets one San Giovanni, carrying the little Jesu. You pretty pigeon. Do you think anybody could help taking care of you if you looked at them? Shall you always come and take care of me? said Tessa, turning her face up to him, as he crushed her cheek with his left hand. And shall you always be a long while first? Tito was conscious that some bystanders were laughing at them, and though the license of street fun among artists and the young men of the wealthier sort as well as among the populace made few adventures exceptional still less disreputable he chose to move away towards the end of the piazza perhaps i shall come again to you very soon tessa he answered rather dreamily when they had moved away he was thinking that when all the rest had turned their backs upon him, it would be pleasant to have this little creature adoring him and nestling against him. The absence of presumptuous self-conceit in Tito made him feel all the more defenceless under perspective of Loki. He needed soft looks and caresses too much ever to be impudent. In the Mercato, said Tessa. Not tomorrow morning, because the Primo will be there, 
and he is so cross oh but do you have money and he will not be cross if you buy some salad and there are some chestnuts do you like chestnuts he said nothing but continued to look down at her with a dreamy gentleness and tessa felt herself in a state of delicious wonder everything seemed as new as if she were being carried on a chariot of clouds holy virgin she explained again presently there is a holy father like the bishop i saw at prato tito looked up too and saw that he had unconsciously advanced to within a few yards of the conjurer maestro vaiano who for the moment was forsaken by the crowd his face was turned away from them and he was occupied with the apparatus on his altar or table preparing a new diversion by the time the interest in the dancing should be exhausted the monkey was imprisoned under the red cloth out of reach of mischief and the youngster in the white surplice was holding a sort of dish or salver from which his master was taking some ingredient the altar-like table with its gorgeous cloth the row of tapers the sham episcopal costume the surplus attendant and even the movements of the mitred figure as he alternately bent his head and then raised something before the lights were sufficiently near parody to sacred things to rouse poor little tess's veneration and there was some additional awe produced by the mystery of their appearance in this spot for when she had seen an altar in the street before it had been on corpus christi day and there had been a procession to account for it she crossed herself and looked up at tito but then as if she had had time for reflection said it is because of the nativita meanwhile vajano had turned round raising his hands to his mitre with the intention of changing his dress when his quick eye recognized tito and tessa who were both looking at him their faces being shone upon by the light of his tapers while his own was in shadow ha ha my children he said instantly stretching out his hands in benedictory attitude you are come to be married i commend your penitence the blessing of holy church can never come too late but whilst he was speaking he had taken in the whole meaning of tessa's attitude and expression and he discerned an opportunity for a new kind of joke which required him to be cautious and solemn should you like to be married to me tessa said tito softly half enjoying the comedy as he saw the pretty childish seriousness on her face half prompted by the hazy provisions which belonged to the intoxication of despair he felt her vibrating before she looked up at him and said timidly will you let me he answered only by a smile and by leading her forward in front of the coretano who seeing an excellent jest in tessa's evident delusion assumed a surpassing sacerdotal solemnity and went through the mimic ceremony with a liberal expenditure of lingua ferbosca or thieves latin but some symptoms of a new movement in the crowd urged him to bring it to a speedy conclusion and dismissed them with outstretched hands in benedictory attitude over their kneeling figures tito disposed always to cultivate good-will though it might be the least select 
put a piece of four grossi into his hand as he moved away and was thanked by a look which the conjurer felt sure conveyed a perfect understanding of the whole affair but tito himself was very far from that understanding and did not in fact know whether the next moment he should tell tessa of the little joke and laugh at her for her little goose or whether he should let her delusion last and see what would come of it see what she would say and do next then you will not go away from me again said tessa after they had walked a few steps and you will take me to where you live she spoke meditatively and not in a questioning tone but presently she added i must go back once to the madre though to tell her i brought the cocoons and that i am married and shall not go back again tito felt the necessity of speaking now and in the rapid thought prompted by that necessity he saw that by undeceiving tessa he should be robbing himself of some at least of that pretty trustfulness which might by and by be his only haven from contempt it would spoil tessa to make her the least particle wiser or more suspicious yes my little tessa he said caressingly you must go back to the madre but you must not tell her you are married you must keep that a secret from everybody else some very great harm will happen to me and you will never see me again she looked up at him with fear in her face you must go back and feed your goats and your mules and do just as you have always done before and say no word to any one about me the corners of her mouth fell a little and then perhaps i shall come and take care of you again when you want me as i did before but you must do what i tell you else you will never see me again yes i will i will she said in a loud whisper frightened at that blank prospect they were silent a little while and then tessa looking at her hand said the madre wears a betrothal ring she went to church and had it put on and then after that another day she was married and so did the cousin anino but then she married gollo added the poor little thing entangled in the difficult comparison between her own ease and others within her experience but you must not wear a betrothal ring my tessa because no one must know you are married said tito feeling some insistence necessary and the buona fortuna i gave you did just as well for betrothal some people are betrothed with rings and some are not yes it is true they would see the ring said tessa trying to convince herself that a thing she would like very much was really not good for her they were near the entrance of the church again and she remembered her cocoons which were still in tito's hand ah you must give me the bottle she said and we must go in and i must take it to the padre and i will tell the rest of my beads because i was too tired before yes you must go in tessa but i will not go in i must leave you now said tito 
too feverish and weary to re-enter that stifling heat, and feeling that this was the least difficult way of parting with her. And not come back. Oh, where do you go? Tessa's mind had never formed an image of his whereabout, or doings, when she did not see him. He had vanished, and her thought, instead of following him, had stayed in the same spot where he was with her. "'I shall come back some time, Tessa,' said Tito, taking her under the cloisters to the door of the church. "'You must not cry. When you have said your beads, you must go to sleep. And here is money to buy your breakfast. Now, kiss me and look happy, else I shall not come again.' She made a great effort over herself as she put up her lips to kiss him and submitted to be gently turned round with her face towards the door of the church. Tito saw her enter, and then, with a shrug at his own resolution, leaned against the pillar, took off his cap, rubbed his hair backward, and wondered where Romola was now, and what she was thinking of him. Poor little Tessa had disappeared behind the curtain among the crowd of peasants. But the love, which formed one web with all his worldly hopes, with the ambitions and pleasures that must make the solid part of his days, the love was identified with his larger self, was not to be banished from his consciousness. Even to the man who presents the most elastic resistance to whatever is unpleasant, there will come moments when the pressure from without is too strong for him, and he must feel the smart and the bruise in spite of himself. Such a moment had come to Tito. There was no possible attitude of mind, no scheme of action by which the uprooting of all his newly planted hopes could be made otherwise than painful. End of chapter 14